are you all today? Today's message, I've given it, I've, I actually came up with a title. Jordan always asks me, what's the title? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> so this is called Advice from a 17-Year-Old. Which sort of, I was thinking about this because of a couple of reasons. Number one, next this week, as Peter has already mentioned, is the beginning of university. So I'm going to have to deal with um, young people again. Number two, last week, I wasn't here because I was in Melbourne doing two things. Number one, looking after Alicia because she fell over and busted her leg. Uh, but the reason we went to Melbourne was to go to uh, Rend Collective. I don't know if you know the band. Uh, they're very good Irish band. Um, come from Northern Ireland, just down the road from where my family come from, actually. And uh, we went there and it was the most... It was the most incredible worship night I've ever been to, I think. Um, but the thing that, that amazed me was that we were in the third row on account of Alicia in the wheelchair. Um, so that was nice. Uh, but, but pretty much in front of us, between us and the stage, was just like jam-packed young people. I don't know, maybe, tw- you know, just young people. Um, all who managed to jump up and down for the entire, like, hour and three quarters of the whole thing. And I, ha- I took a couple of bits of video, and you can just see them. They're just going, like, their heads are going like this. And I'm just like, I didn't, I, I sort of bopped. I didn't really jump. And Leisha lay there like that <laughs> across the chairs. Because, of course, all the young people were up, so we had heaps of chairs. But I was thinking about, and that sort of prompted me to think about young people. And... Um, <laughs> when we're talking um, this for the next little while about our spiritual formation and the journey of life, like I think we often think that older makes you wiser, but I th- now that I've got sort of old, I realise that old does not automatically make wise. <laughs> old just makes old, right? <laughs> Something else makes you wise. And uh, if we can, if uh, I think there's a scripture that, that I've been meditating on since I was very young. It's one of those things where I, I know, I remember very distinctly the day that I was first um, sort of like struck by the scripture. The reason I remember it, I was probably, I was 18, I wasn't 17, I was 18 and I was at a church uh, service was a youth service um, and the guy who, uh, he was a guest speaker and he said, Every, all the young people please come to the front, I'm going to pray for you all, which is like it's a youth service. So the entire, <laughs> the entire pot, you know, the whole place all ended up in the front and up the back. Well, me, um, I was at the back of the back of the end of the, co- of the aisle, right? So way up the back. So I had gone out but I had not really tried very hard to get very close to get prayed for and what does this guy do he says you <laughs> it's like how can you tell you you is pulled me out from way up the back made me walk through this sea of people right to the front and when he got when I got to the front he said this he said I want you to go and find the scriptures about renewing your mind because they are going to become the bedrock of your life so I dutifully did that and discovered there. There aren't many that actually use the 
the, the actual phrase, renew the mind, in the scripture. There's only a couple. And so one has become, it has become the bedrock of my life. He also said, you're a mouse right now and you won't say boo to anybody, but God's going to turn you into a lion and you're going to start roaring. That was a good word, wasn't it? But the one that I, that I, that's stuck in my heart and stuck in my mind all this time is in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And it's, this is what it says. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, there's a couple of thoughts that come to my mind. I'm going to try and not get sidetracked right now because we've got to get to the 17-year-old. But there are two words. If we talk about spiritual formation, there are two words in this scripture about the way that we are formed. The first method is the word conformed. And then the second one, is transformed. And this scripture tells us don't be conformed, but be transformed. And I think this is a very important point because conforming means you can come into formation by conforming. But conforming means that you have brought yourself into a pattern of behavior, a pattern of life. But it hasn't gone through your it hasn't gone through your, your inner man, because the renewing of your mind is not just about it's not just about what's going on in your brain. I don't think God means your brain when He talks about your mind. He's actually talking about your inner man. And if you conform, then you have a problem because all you've learned to do is to just follow the pattern of wherever you are. This is why I believe that so many young people who have appeared to be all together and fine while they were at the Christian school fall apart at university. Because they've learnt in the school to conform to the pattern of the world around them, which happens to be the nice Christian school, where you conform to the pattern of doing and being Christian. And then you get off to university where you haven't got that sort of world around you. And what have they learned to do? They've learned to conform. So what they do is they conform to the world around them. We all run this risk. It's easy to come to church and conform to the pattern of what we do here in church. But unless we get to the point where we have been transformed, then we cannot take what we have in the church, out to the world. So you can't take what you've got in here out there if it's just conforming. If you're here going through the motions, it won't go anywhere else with you. What has to happen is transformation. And transformation comes by ultimately, it's like, Transformation, I think, is a bit like repentance. You know the word repentance means to turn around and go the other direction? That's what transformation is. Transformation is like repentance. It's basically turning around and going in the other direction. 
and saying, I'm not doing this because it's what we do. I'm doing this because I know that this is fundamentally my identity in Christ. This is what God has called me to do. If you want to prove what the will of God is, and here's an interesting thing. As an academic, I teach science education, and you know we say stuff like science proves things? Guess what? Science doesn't prove anything. Science discovers things. Science explains things. Science never proves things. And in fact, the fundamental philosophy of science is that you find one point where it doesn't work and you have just disproved the whole thing. But God says that we can prove his will. His will is actually not rocket science. His will is what he's, who he's called you to be. Who has, what, who, what does he call you? Because what he calls you is what his will is for your life. God calls you a child of God. That is his will for your life. If you are a child of God, what does it mean you do? You act like your dad, right. We still haven't got to the advice from a 17-year-old. I got sidetracked by my introductory scripture. So, in that, in this transformation process, this concept of changing fundamentally what you think in your own head, in your own heart, in your own inner man, I wanted to just have a couple of, I had a couple of thoughts about the life of David. Now, David has a very long life, the whole thing documented in the Bible. But I just want, to think, want you to think about this. Because what's the one biggest faith, God-inspired thing that David did in his entire life? What's the one that stands out? David? Goliath, Goliath right? Think about that. It's like the one that stands out in your head is Goliath. David defeated Goliath. Now, when David defeated Goliath, he was about 17. How did, like when you think about this concept, how did this 17-year-old get to the point that his faith was so assured that he could slay a giant that the entire army of Israelites, now these are, we're not talking about just a ragbag group of blokes that King Saul has somehow managed to pull together at the last minute. We're talking men of war. So an entire army of men of war were not game to go near this guy. So what, hap- what was going on? What did David do that he was in a situation at 17 that he had the faith to face Goliath? Now, I had this thought come to my head. He was just young, which means he was stupid. (laughs) You know, the whole, the frontal lobe is the last part of your brain that actually connects up. Your frontal lobe is the one that says, oh, that could be dangerous. And that for some people, like the average person, the average female, it connects up at about 17, 18, 
So that's why girls go, oh, that could be dangerous quite young. But the average point where a man's frontal lobe connects up to actually make the thought, oh, that could be dangerous, pop up into their head. Some of the people around here with motorbikes, I'm not sure if you've actually got that at all. Um, <laughs> but the average is actually 28 for men. 28. Which is why, or 88 maybe. So, which is why young men are far more risk takers than young women. So I did have that thought cross my mind. But if you actually read the story in chapter 17 of Samuel, 16 and 17 of Samuel, um, and uh, particularly when it comes to uh, verse 45 through to 48, we're just going to read that passage. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord did not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hands. So it was when the Philistine arose, that's Goliath, and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. That little speech is not the little speech. That's a pretty major speech. That is not the, that is not the, that is not the language of somebody who's being foolhardy. That is the language of someone who knows who he is in God and he knows with assurance what he can stand on. It's not just that he's young and stupid. He knows something that nobody else there knows. And so I asked myself this question. You know, I was like, I've been thinking about, so what, what did David do to advance his faith at such a young age? Because whatever he did, I was like, I'm figuring I need to do that. And so I got three points. We're going to get through them very quickly. Looking at the time. The first one is that David practiced obedience. So in the story of David, as you know, in First uh, Samuel chapter 16... Around about verses 19 and 20. We won't read them, but some, um, we might put them up there. That, and, and earlier on in 16, round about verses 12 to 13 on through there. That what has happened in, Daniel's, in David's life up to this point is Samuel has come and anointed him as the king. So this, you know, over all his brothers, so he's already been anointed to be the king. So you could think that you, if you've been anointed king that you might have some capacity to, you know, call out some privilege there. But instead, what David does is he remains in obedience to those who had authority over him at that young age. And he continues to do what his father 
and the current king tells him to do. He practices obedience to the authority that's over his life. And as old as I am, I had a funny conversation actually the other day with my mother because my mother is a little bit worried that people keep telling her what to do all the time. Um, she has dementia, so we have to tell her what to do all the time. But she's going, she was having very, quite grumpy quite upset about it and she's like well do you have people telling you what to do all the time I'm like actually yes mum I do when I go to church and I play in the band Richard tells me what to do and when I preach I go to the preachers meeting and Peter tells me what to do and when I go to work my boss her name's Claire she tells me what to do and when I go to you know everywhere I go people tell me what to do so I had this lovely conversation with my mother and she's like oh okay <laughs> So she realised she didn't have a leg to stand on telling me that she was sick of people telling her what to do. You know, the reality in life is there are always people who have responsibility and authority over you. Here in church, church runs in good order because there are people who know what that's supposed to be happening and they ensure that those things happen. And that good order only happens when you fall into line with where God is taking us. When you do what it is that God's called you to do under the authority that God's placed in that place. David knew that. And David practiced that sort of obedience. And he remained humble in that, even though, you know, he knew the anointing that Samuel had, you know, what, how Samuel had anointed him to be king. Second thing is that David practiced the presence of God. So we, we know from all the Psalms that, God con that David wrote that David continued this into his life. But actually at this stage we already know that David practices God's presence with music, no less. Because if you, in, um, in the story about Saul and the dress distressing spirit that was you know, troubling him, one of the servants answered and said, Look, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person. And the Lord is with him. He had already at that point been practicing the presence of God. <coughs> and as you know, in, as it continues on, that whenever the spirit um, from God was upon Saul, that David would take the harp and play it with his hand and Saul would become refreshed and well and the distressing spirit would depart from him. So long before David got to Goliath, he had established practices of the presence of God in his life. Now he didn't have the benefit of having an entire you know, Bible, New Testament, Old Testament to help him with that. But he did know the power of the atmosphere that's created by music. I only cried three times at the Ren Collective concert. The three times were three times where the presence of God was powerful in that, in that, in that service. Those were once when there was an altar call. About 30, 40, 50 odd people gave their life to Christ at the concert. The second time was when they played my favourite song, which is My Lighthouse. 
which was my theme song not long back when my life was in total turmoil and I played that song for six hours a day, every day, for probably about four or five weeks. And the third time was at the very end of the concert. So at the end of the concert, they'd played My Lighthouse. They then sang What a Beautiful Name It Is. And then they played um, I Love You, Lord, and I Lift My Voice. You know that really old chorus? In, in the dark, where all the whole congregation is singing the song, halfway through the song, the band left the stage so that the congregation continued to worship God by finishing the song, because, of course, we all knew it, and at the end of the song, they turned on the lights and half... You know, like I knew the band had gone because musically I was tuned into those types of things. But I'm pre- I, when you saw the, the... When you looked across the audience, you knew that there was a whole bunch of people who didn't even realise that the band had gone. It was just the audience left worshipping God at the end of that. Of course, that moment made me all goosebumpy and I cried again. Only three times. <laughs> There's power in the presence of music. It's very powerful. And David viewed to practice that. If I ever get myself in a crisis, the first thing I do is open my iTunes or my Spotify, find a Christian worship list and just start playing. Because I know that whatever is going on, whatever turmoil is going on, you just can't stay in turmoil while you're praising God and worshipping God. It's just impossible. It's like, it's just impossible. It's like when I was a kid, my mother had this strategy. If you were ever grumpy, she used to sing a song to us. It went like this. Today I feel so happy, so happy, so happy. Today I feel so happy and I don't know why I am. And she would repeat that until such time as you just got happy. <laughs> Can I say as a child, I thought that was really annoying. <laughs> but the point is, you know what? You cannot stay grumpy while you are singing, today I feel so happy. It's just impossible. There's power in that. You know, and and David knew that. And then the third thing is that David practiced his testimony. So we know in the story, you know, and I read it before, David's pronouncement to Goliath. Before David pronounced all that pronouncements to Goliath, he he said the same stuff over and over again. First time, he gets up there, obediently follows his father's his father, Jesse, sends him up to take stuff to his brother. Now, he's done this knowing that his brothers are going to tell him off and, you know, bully him for getting there. But he gets up there and the first thing he does is he says to the men of war, okay, what happens to the guy who kills him? He immediately starts to practice his testimony. Then his brother has a go at him. So he repeats it. He, in fact, repeats it so many times that someone tells Saul, there's this young guy down there who thinks he's going to kill Goliath. So then Saul calls him in, and what does he do? He repeats it again. It's in um, 1 Samuel 17, 32. 
31, it says, Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And then in verse 34, And David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing as he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. He is practicing his testimony. And he is repeating it to anybody who will listen. And perhaps a few who didn't want to listen, like his brother. (laughs) And Saul said, go, the Lord be with you. But then I actually realized that not only did he practice his testimony with his language, but David also practiced his testimony with his actions. Because the next thing Saul does is Saul then tries to chunk his armor on David. Now, what do we know about Saul is that Saul was tall. Like he's like a foot a head above the whole rest of the armies, right? Now, I don't know about... I know you can get some very tall 17-year-olds. But even if they are tall, normally at 17, if they're really tall, they also look like bing poles. You know, they're like lanky talls. They're not big, muscly, I'm bigger than everybody else tall. At 17, they're like bing poles if they get that tall. It's like someone just sort of stretched them out and forgot to put the muscles on yet. So Saul, in verse 38, he's trying to stick this massive helmet on his head and put him in all this armor. It's going to be way too big. I mean, I've got this, you know, you've, you've got this picture of this map. Now, David could have gone, actually, this could be useful. Nothing's going to hit me through here because I actually can hide completely inside. You know, pull your arms in. He would have fitted the, you know, his whole body in there. But David knows that his testimony is not with armor. His testimony is with stones and a sling. So David says, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. It's interesting that he used the word tested them. His testimony was not yet in armor. His testimony was with a, you know, bare arms and a slingshot and a few rocks. So David took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. And he put them in a shepherd's bag, in a pouch which he had, and his sling was in his hand. And he drew near to the Philistine. You see, David, in practicing his testimony, not only did he know that his testimony was his words, he said, says, you overcome them by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. But he also knew that practicing his testimony knew, meant that he needed to act on the stuff that he already, how he'd already operated in the spirit. And how he'd already operated was as a shepherd with rocks in a shepherd's pouch, a staff and a slingshot. And so that is what he took into this battle. Doesn't mean that's the way he fought all his battles because eventually he tested 
without the armor. But at this moment, he knew, this is my testimony. This is what I can stand on. This is how I can operate in faith. And you stand on that testimony, and that takes you to the next level. And then when you stand on that testimony, it takes you to the next level. See, the wisdom of the 17-year-old was knowing that you don't want to get out. You don't want to get too big. You don't want to get into armor that's way too big because you're not going to actually be able to pick it up and go anywhere with it. But you stand on what you have to take the next step. And I've written down this as we come to a conclusion. That when it comes to spiritual formation, it is not foolishness to believe what God says about you. That you don't get wise by getting older, but you get wise by who you listen to and who you repeat and what you allow to transform the way you think about 